Hello, and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Rosette Hernandez, coming to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... They repealed the 2021 Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Laws and replaced it with the 50-year-old, more than that now, non-1972 The Western Australian government repealed a bill to protect First Nations heritage and was replaced by an old bill. Also, how hydrogen is supporting renewables in Queensland. And later today... Useful information helped Kiwans to organize and secure their lives in new conditions. We demonstrate digital inclusion under any challenges and show how a city app can become... An award-winning app is supporting Ukrainians to be connected in Kyiv. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support for the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the conflict between Israel and Hamas continues, and today U.S. President Joe Biden addressed the nation, asking the U.S. Congress $100 billion U.S. dollars for Israel to defend itself, for humanitarian help for Gaza, and for Ukraine. Communities across the world continue to protest against the war, and Western Australia is not the exception. The Perth Palestinian community and its supporters will protest again on Saturday against Israeli attacks on civilians in Gaza. The Wires contributor from Narda Media, Gerard Maza, asked former Gaza resident and member of Friends of Palestine, Western Australia, Amai Kwadar, to explain more about what's happening in Gaza. The group is organizing a demonstration basically to raise awareness about the current atrocities and genocidal war taking place in Gaza. As we may have been following the news currently unfolding in Gaza, which has been described for many, many years, about 17 years, as an open-air prison for 2.2 million Palestinians, 70% of whom are refugees, mostly women and children, currently being under bombing, Israeli bombing, backed up by the Americans. They're being bombed from air, sky, and land. My family, like many other families, have been evacuated, have been displaced, basically, uh, forcibly from their homes in uh, in Gaza. So far, the last 10, 10 days, this ongoing genocidal war bombing campaign against the civilian population of Gaza has caused the loss of almost 3,000 Palestinians, including 800 children killed. Over 10,000 have been injured. There's no uh, where that is safe. Israel continues to prevent the humanitarian aid supplies to enter Gaza, including food, water, uh, electricity. We've been, you know, receiving reports from our families and friends in uh, in Gaza of you know, paramedics being targeted, civilian civilian homes being obliterated at the top of their uh, residence without any warning. Two hospitals have been reported are out of operation now. Gaza in total darkness now. Um, for 10 days, there's no electricity, no water, no no internet. It's been quite challenging for me to to connect with my own family, with my own friend, uh, friend uh, because... 
the uh, internet is uh, the internet service provider have been targeted the telecommunication companies have been targeted so it is we live second by second to basically receive any information about my our own families whether they're still alive or or not we're hearing a lot of commentary in the australian media that is in support of israel politicians commentators are saying things like the attacks by hamas were the worst attacks on jewish people since the holocaust saying things like this was israel's 9-11 and israel has a right to defend itself forcefully. They're the kinds of things that they are saying. How do you feel when you hear statements like that being made? Um, it's really important here because what tends to happen quite often is that the things are taken out of out of context. Uh, even before all this all started, Palestinians have been living under a brutal occupation for 75 years. This year so far, before all this war has started, Around 300 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank, in Gaza, in East Jerusalem. And this is the brutal, you know, this is the source of violence, is the occupation, apartheid, settler colonialism that has to come to and in basically. That's when we wanted to address, it is not, you know, we need to address the root cause of the violence. And I think the oppression and the humiliation and the dehumanization of the Palestinians are the source of the violence. Everyone's, if you talk to everyone in Gaza, including my own family, all they are just asking for is just to live in peace, dignity, justice. They wanted to have a proper dignified life like anywhere, anyone in the world. Um, and it's until their plight is addressed properly Palestinians will, you know, there will be continuous aggression and violence, unfortunately. So it is, it's time for the Israeli government to end its colonial project. In the Senate, Senator Lydia Thorpe said that there were similarities between the struggles of the Palestinian people and the struggles of First Nations people here in this continent. Are they similarities that you you see as well? hundred percent and really appreciate her speech in the parliament and it's been circulated widely in the network and with the comrade in, in Palestine because it was really uplifting to see a courageous and brave Tehran that spoke up against what's happening in, in Gaza. Absolutely, absolutely the struggle for the Palestinian for the indigenous people is so close to our heart because it's, it's a struggle against settler colonialism and we uh, and we uphold and we support a struggle made. What would you like to see the Australian government do in response to these atrocities? What we wanted the Australian government is to stop this catastrophic humanitarian situation in Gaza, call upon Australian government to put an end to the, you know, call upon the Israelis, the, the Americans to, you know, take a moral stance and, sub, and stop this aggression on, on civilian population. And also, most importantly, is to, you know, allow humanitarian aid supplies to enter to Gaza. So we really wanted to uh, have more moral and human stance from the Australian government to basically call an end to the suffering before it's too late. Amine Kwaidar from Friends of Palestine, WA there, speaking with Narda Media's Gerard Maza. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs from all over Australia. A bill to repeal Western Australia's 2021 Aboriginal cultural heritage laws and replace them with an updated version of an older act 
has been passed through both houses of Parliament this week. The 2021 legislation came into place earlier this year, but Premier Roger Cook announced plans to repeal it after just five weeks, following pressure from farmers and landowners. A new version of the 1972 bill will be installed instead. The Wires contributor from Narda Media, Marion Chidi, asked WA's Green MP Brad Pittet for an update on the issue. Uh, it was a bit depressing. So in the Legislative Council this week, which is the upper house of the West Australian Parliament, they repealed the, the 2021 Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Laws and replaced it with the 50-year-old, more than that now, non-1972 uh, bill. And unfortunately, as a result of that, uh, it went back to that kind of thinking from 50 years ago around what Aboriginal Cultural Heritage is and really with far less protections and far less engagement with Aboriginal people. Firstly, what do you think about the timing? Do you think it was appropriate for the government to pass this legislation right after the referendum result? No, the timing was appalling. In fact, I it was very disappointing because the timing involved the week, in the lead-up to the week before The Voice, and I know a lot of Aboriginal people felt very constrained when, you know, and un- unable to speak out because they didn't want to kind of... Because the whole Aboriginal cultural heritage debate in Western Australia has been so uh, so toxic in, in many ways that it really stopped people speaking out. And then, of course, after... And, you know, when, when sadly the voice was, was lost, I think people didn't... You know, were, were exhausted. Lots were, were observing a week of silence. So I think it was a, not a good time to rush it through. So I, I was really disappointed about that. But but look, but hopefully, nevertheless, in the weeks ahead, we can speak up loud about this and actually make it clear that, that this was um, a very uh, very poor step in the wrong direction. Um, some changes have been made to the 1972 Act. Traditional owners will now be able to appeal Section 18 decisions. There are new limits on gag clauses. Will these changes make a difference? Look, they are small changes in the right direction for an act that even the government acknowledges is absolutely out of date and not fit for purpose. So, look, getting rid of the gag clause is, is, is important. Some of those appeals things will be important, but but there were some really obvious things that should have changed. We wish they didn't. I'll just give you one, one example. So, mm. the penalties for, for destroying Aboriginal cultural heritage are now the lowest in the country. Um, they, they were last changed in the early 2000s, more than 20 years ago. And the government refused to change them, and they're in legislation. So the government and the government refused to change them and make them higher. So now, if, if someone goes and knowingly destroys a corporation, goes and knowingly destroys Aboriginal cultural heritage, the penalties as low as fifty thousand. In fact, the maximum penalty is fifty thousand dollars. And we're in other states, we're seeing penalties in the millions, uh, which is what it should be. All right. On top of changes to penalties. What other amendments did the Greens push for? Yeah, so that was a key one. The other really key one was actually the definition of Aboriginal cultural heritage. Um, unfortunately, now we're going back to this definition from 1972, when, frankly, I think most people didn't have a good understanding of this at all. They largely saw Aboriginal cultural heritage as just artefacts and objects, you know, almost like the view of the archaeologist, really rather than actually understanding it's a part of a living culture, understanding that it's, some of it's not, is, is what they call intangible. Some of it is things that you can't touch. Mm. Uh, it's about stories. It's about, it's, it's about places and landscapes. So we tried to do an amendment that would reinsert a fuller, proper definition 
of Aboriginal cultural heritage. And unfortunately, that, that wasn't supported by the government or the opposition, which was really disappointing. So now we've gone back to this very narrow thing. Unless it's an object, it won't be protected. Were the government willing to consider your amendments? Not at all. And I, and, and I should also say, this. They say these actually weren't just my amendments. These were amendments that we got from speaking to judicial owner groups and to others. They were amendments that actually sometimes came from the government's own words that they put in, the, in their own 2021 legislation, which they supported. So these were good amendments. Uh, the government uh, should have done it. They would have better protected Aboriginal cultural heritage. But sadly, I, I've just... There's a real lack of courage from the government. Yes. All right. Um, The debate around heritage laws has been very difficult. Do you think there's a way to move forward on this issue? Where can we go from here? It's a very good question. Look, I hope so. I know that some people have said to me, look, perhaps the irony of the 1972 laws that we've gone back to, the irony of them being so bad is that surely... We can't stay with those for too long. That was WA's Greens MP Brad Pettit ending the story by Narda Media's Marion Cheedy. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Merced Hernandez in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Brome, Western Australia. The conversation around renewable energy sources in Australia has increased over the last couple of years and it's gaining momentum. Hydrogen has been a part of these conversations, but Queensland is leading the way with a strategy already in place. How is hydrogen changing the landscape for renewables in Queensland, and how are the other jurisdictions doing? The Wire's Eduardo Jordan asked CEO of Hydrogen Queensland, Heidi Breen, at the Asia-Pacific City Summit in Brisbane, what the organisation is looking for. Hydrogen Queensland is a a membership-based industry association. We are the peak hydrogen industry body for the state of Queensland. Um, And we're made up of members and industry partners that are all focused on growing and accelerating the use of hydrogen, and specifically clean hydrogen, to decarbonise hard-to-abate industry sectors. So as we know, the Queensland government has invested more than $110 million in the Queensland hydrogen industry strategy over the last four years. How's the industry grown over this time and what advantages are we already seeing with hydrogen? There has been an enormous growth due to that investment and lots of interest um, from many parties. There have been numerous feasibility studies, lots of pilot programs, um, and we've seen the first electrolyzers deployed successfully and commissioned in Australia over that time. In Queensland, um, we have one operating at Bulwa Island at the BOC facility there, and our first refuelling station at BP at Lytton, um, which is a joint project between BOC and BP. Um, and so what we're seeing now is, is the use cases of hydrogen emerging, um, the first use cases being in the mobility sector and, the, and looking specifically at heavy transport, where um, things like trucks and buses, where it doesn't make sense to use um, EV or battery vehicles because of the weight of the battery um, and the impact on the payload. So um, that's the instances where hydrogen makes a lot of sense. In a nutshell, I mean, it's more complicated than just explaining what's going on, But um, how is energy produced from hydrogen? 
The most common way, especially in the clean hydrogen space, so it depends on what kind of hydrogen you want at the end or what derivative of hydrogen, but in the clean hydrogen case, um, electrolysis is the process that's used. And electrolysis is the process of putting in electricity and water and then splitting the water into its hydrogen and oxygen components. And that's what we've been showcasing here at the summit. We've been um, working with our industry partner, Endua, and demonstrating their electrolyzer to interested people to show how that works. For our listeners who are unfamiliar, why is hydrogen better than some other sources of energy? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that it is better. Um, in fact, there'll be um, when we look at, at the energy transition and moving towards decarbonisation, hydrogen will become part of that energy mix, but probably only 10 to 15% in all reality. Where it actually shines is those industry sectors where, as I said, batteries aren't a feasible alternative and where perhaps a large amount of energy is required for processes like industrial heating. So hydrogen could be used as a feedstock into the process, for example, for making electricity to make green steel, for example. Now, we're seeing also that cities want to become more sustainable uh, in energy resources. Why do you believe hydrogen is the way to go in this mix? I think for local governments and for cities looking at sustainability, it's the, the value proposition around a circular economy that hydrogen really starts to um, become interesting. When you look at the technologies that are emerging in the waste of hydrogen space, which solves a lot of problems um, for cities in terms of how they manage their landfill waste, but also their wastewater, um, and the byproducts of, of making hydrogen through an electrolysis process is oxygen, which our wastewater treatment facilities can also use. And so I think for local governments and cities, it presents a um, a really neat alternative um, to other power sources that they can produce themselves um, and then reconsume the energy. As, as I mentioned before, the Queensland government is heavily investing in, in, in hydrogen. They have a strategy and they're, they're leading the way in, in Australia, what I've researched. Would you like to see more states and territories to be interested in hydrogen as an energy resource? A hundred percent. There are other states and territories that are doing things, um, absolutely. Um, Tasmania and South Australia, particularly two that come to mind, and Western Australia as well. Queensland is a leader in this space because we have such a proactive government um, and also an abundant amount of renewable energy resource so that we can position ourselves to make lots of clean hydrogen. So um, we are unique in that way, but hopefully with more and more projects coming on board, um, we'll be able to scale the industry and reach a point where um, the production of hydrogen becomes a, a real feasible commercial and economical alternative for energy users. We're always looking to engage with um, industry and with um, cities and local government. And so please um, have a look at our website, www.h2q.com.au, um, and join our cause. We're, um, we're an organisation that's driven by volunteers. Um, we have five working groups solving the biggest problems that are facing the industry. If it's, an, if it's an area of passion or interest of yours, we'd love to meet you. CEO of Hydrogen Queensland, Heidi Breen there, speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. Despite the conflict with Russia over the last 20 months, Ukraine is demonstrating resilience to challenges. At the Asia-Pacific City Summit in Brisbane, the city of Kyiv showcased an award-winning app to keep its residents connected and give adequate information about the council and the conflict. The Wire's Eduardo Jordan attended the summit. Over the last 20 months, Ukraine has been involved in a conflict with Russia, with no signs of stopping anytime soon. But despite this significant event in Eastern Europe, Ukraine is moving forward. The city of Kiev has developed an app to keep connected with its residents with relevant information. 
Chief Digital Transformation Officer at the City of Kiev, Petro Olenich, presented the Kiev app at the Asia-Pacific City Summit in Brisbane via video to showcase the app. He says the app is helping to connect residents. Kiev Digital App became a single interface to the smart city ecosystem and a digital services platform that collects first-hand data. City Mobile application was created as a remote smart city control for Kyiv residents and is constantly expanding the list of digital services provided. Currently, the population of Kyiv is almost 3,300,000 people and the number of users of Kyiv digital app is more than 2,500,000 people, almost all the city's adult population. The app also provides different services. Kyiv digital team ensures the functioning of the city and its services for key ones. We are developing our digital infrastructure and the services for our residents, such as notification and civil defense system, informing about the state of the environment and air quality, convenient smart mobility services, e-democracy instruments, as well as developing the cultural and touristic block through the digitalization of cultural heritage. Since the Russian invasion, Kyiv has faced many social and financial issues. However, the app has supported not only citizens, but businesses too. Science, the beginning of full-scale innovations on February 24, 2022, Russian barbarians have constantly destroyed Ukrainian objects of social and critical infrastructure. Every day and every night, we have permanent missile attacks and must be strong. Just from the very first day of the war in Ukraine, people were left without access to the maps, businesses were closing, there was a lack of food and water, problems with medicines. Kyiv Digital App has come in handy for Kyiv residents in the most difficult times and helped to stay informed. The experience of transforming smart city technologies during the pandemic allowed us to adapt the Kyiv Digital App to the needs of key ones in wartime conditions as quickly as possible. Mr. Olenich says it's not just an app to protect its citizens from war. It has also other capabilities such as public transport payment and car park location. In the key digital city application, you can top up your transport card, futures a monthly pass and QR ticket for public transport. City completely refused from using paper tickets and now payments for municipal transport can be made with a bank card. Citizens keep track of municipal transport schedules and roads online. It is a map of transport management. Drivers also have access to parking service in three clicks. Map of parking lots and the service of returning the evacuated car. All of this can be done in a matter of minutes with the Kyiv digital app. He also says residents are also engaged with democratic processes. The digitalization era increasingly emphasizes the importance of democratic tools nowadays. Participatory budgeting was the first e-democracy tool implemented by our team. It allows every resident to participate in the allocation of local budget funds by creating projects to improve the city. A part of the city budget is reserved for the needs of the citizens. It is very important not to lose touch with citizens, especially in times of war. The Keep app not only has been recognized in Ukraine, but has received awards worldwide.
Mr. Olenich says resilience during these times are helping to keep more residents connected and informed. Our strength in resilience, rapid transformations and innovative services for citizens were recognized on the international level. Among them, the World Smart City Award Special Recognition 2022, the 2023 Digital Resilience Award and the GLOBE Awards Information Technology Winner 2023. Withstanding the increasing pressure of war, we constantly share the lessons learned on how to turn disruption into a unique expertise. And while the situation in Australia is completely different, when would councils connect its residents with technology? The Wire's Eduardo Jordan with that story. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SCR in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3 Z, 4 Z, and the Radio 4EB in Brisbane, with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Merced Hernandez. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you guys next time on The Wire. <laughs>